you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. This morning we are finishing teaching through the book of Colossians. The title of our series as we've been walking through the book of Colossians is the theme of the book of Colossians, that our hope in Jesus Christ is found in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was writing to the church at Colossae and writing to us, to build them up in the faith and to build us up in the faith. That the more and more and more that we see the supremacy of Jesus, that Jesus is sovereign over all things, that He rules all things, the more our hope in Him will be established. And that the more and more and more we see the sufficiency of Jesus, that He alone is sufficient for all of our need, that He alone can fill us in a way the world never could, again, the more and more and more our hope in Him will be established. Friends, there are so many things in this world that want to claim supremacy. And so many things that claim sufficiency. And yet, Jesus Christ is the only thing that can carry us. The only thing that can meet our need. Paul preached that to the church of Colossae. And we bring it to you through God's Word. Multiple times as we've walked through the series, I've brought us to Colossians 1, 15-22. Ask us to read it aloud so that we might proclaim it in its truth to each other, I will again do that this morning. If you would join me from the screen in saying with me, Colossians 1, 15-22. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Colossians 1, 15-22, we read that together to affirm its truth and to declare it to one another. Because in this section, Paul's declaring this truth that we need, the truth of who He is and the truth of who we are. That Jesus Christ is preeminent. That He is sufficient. Preeminent meaning that He holds, that He is above all things. Sufficient and that He holds all things together, and that is the picture of Jesus given to us in this book, our hope. And Paul declares to us the truth of who we once were, that we were alienated 
meaning that we were once far from God, that we were hostile, meaning we weren't even seeking God, and we were doing evil things, meaning that our lifestyle of godlessness was flowing from our identity as one without Christ. And it was at that time and in our place of need that Jesus Christ made peace for us. That He reconciled us to Himself through His death on the cross. That we weren't asked to be better. No, Jesus initiated on our behalf. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, died on our behalf, defeated sin on our behalf, and rose from the dead that we might be declared holy and blameless. That He was supreme even over our disobedience. That He was supreme even over our disinterest. And that He was sufficient in His death that the only thing that could satisfy the penalty for our sin was Him. And that's our hope. He's supreme. He is sufficient. Which on a surface level means that I am not supreme. And I am not sufficient. And I don't have to try to be supreme. And I don't have to try to be sufficient. That all of it was absolutely taken care of in Jesus Christ. This is the message of this book. This is why we gather together as a church. So that even in our attendance, we can proclaim our insufficiency. That we gather together because we still struggle with sin. And yet we gather together to proclaim that the one who died in our place is sufficient. That's why we gather this morning. Because Paul takes this, he takes this death and this resurrection of Jesus in this book and he translates it to us. In Colossians 2.20, he declares that we have died with Christ. In Colossians 3.1, he declares that we have been raised with Christ. And in Colossians 3.9 and 10, he gives us the implication of our death and being raised with Christ, declaring this, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its Creator, we who believe in Jesus Christ have put off the old self and its old practices, and we put on the new self, the resurrected life given to us by Christ's death and His resurrection, a life that reflects the Creator manifesting itself in a changed character. He writes that as he continues in chapter 3. That this character manifested in us through Christ looks like compassion. And it looks like kindness. And it looks like humility and meekness and patience. And to that we are called then to add bearing with one another, forgiving and loving. That we would let the peace of Christ rule. That we would be thankful and let His Word dwell within you richly. Why? Because the new self bought by Jesus Christ declares His image. And not merely by words, but by lifestyle. People people often quote St. Francis of Assisi saying, In all things preach Christ. If necessary, use words. And to that, I would add a hearty amen. I know people dissect this in different directions. But what I would call to point out to you of the St. Francis of Assisi quote is that St. Francis was not calling you to good works to declare Christ. 
He was calling you to a life of holiness, to a life of righteousness, to a life of servant-heartedness. That's Paul's argument here. That your character would be so renewed and so restored that you would reflect Jesus by your presence in a room. Past week, there's been a lot made of Mike Pence. Mike Pence, who's following the Billy Graham rule, if you allow me to say it that way. That Mike is unwilling to meet and have a meal with a woman other than his wife or sister. It's not an uncommon practice. I hold it myself. But he's absolutely been criticized by the media for it. And and here's the funny thing. Mike's just trying to honor his wife. I mean, step into it. Mike is just trying to honor his wife. That's it. And he's being crucified for it. Just taking a step in. And and friends, this is where we got to realize that as Christians, people who want to follow Christ, that we're going to be called to make character decisions. And if you make that one, that's great. If you don't, that's fine. But you're going to be called to make character decisions that the world will not understand. And in fact, the world will criticize you for. We weren't called to fit in. We were called to stand out for Christ. That's Paul's push here. That this new self would be so different than the world that the world would pick up on it. That it would see a resurrected life in you and not understand it because you're reflecting not the values of the world but the values of our Savior. And as Paul continues, if you, should you wonder whom you're called to reveal the character of Jesus, Paul jumps into your business. I joke, Wayne tells me sometimes I meddle. Here it comes again. Paul makes it plain and tells it. Wives, show this grace and character to your husbands. Husbands, show this grace and character to your wives. Children, show it to your parents. Parents, show it to your kids. Employees to your bosses, bosses show it to your employees. Because what Paul is pushing out here is that Jesus Christ changes our lives through his death and through his resurrection. That's played out by dying to myself and being resurrected by Jesus. That's not me working harder, that's me dying, sure. But dead things can't raise themselves. Jesus raises us up. And we live out a life in Christ. It's not a behavioral modification plan. As if you should keep a list of sins and put check marks next to it every time you commit one. I think people go through that phase. I was in seminary with a a friend who was having a problem stopping swearing. He took to flicking his tongue every time he said a swear word. And it was pretty effective until he ended up in the hospital with a tongue that was so infected and it lost its point. We're not called just to sin management. We're called to lead a resurrected life, to live in the power of Christ, to die and to be reborn. That's the whole message of the book of Colossians to this point. That's all of what Paul has said here. And so as he finishes out this book, 
He's going to do so by giving us two very familiar exhortations. Things he's come back to over and over through this book. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, he gives us the first. We'll dig in there. Colossians 4.2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul calls us to pray. And in fact, Paul actually calls us to continue in prayer as if it's something we're doing. He's calling you further and further into it. That you continue in prayer and to do it steadfastly. Meaning that you be diligent about it. You remain firm in it. You commit yourself to it. And what Paul does here is he paints the picture that Jesus gives us in John 15 of the vine connected to the branch. That in me, you can accomplish many things. Apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. Paul's saying, remain connected to the Father continuously. Paul wrote this exhortation to almost every church he wrote to. He wrote it to the Thessalonians. He wrote it to the Philippians. He wrote it to the Ephesians. Why? Because prayer was not intended to be a Hail Mary that we toss up in bad situations. No, prayer was intended to be the oxygen for our soul, which we breathe in and we breathe out. Along the way, somebody told me just as a meditation method that you can sit and slow yourself by breathing in Jesus and breathing out Christ. Just to slow yourself down and to calm yourself in Him. Prayer is supposed to be that kind of an ever-moving lifeline in our lives. Which is to say this. If you write down on your piece of paper this morning, pray more and feel guilty about it, you miss the point. The point is that you be connected to the Father all the time. That you realize that you wake up in Christ, you go to sleep in Christ, you do everything you do in Christ, you might as well be talking to Him through the whole process. He's there with you the whole time. About this verse, J. Vernon McGee wrote, This is like breathing. You inhale by prayer and you exhale by thanksgiving. He puts that out to us that we would be mindful of thanking God for everything. Everything. Because in everything God is working and everything God has a plan, even our hardship. And Paul says be watchful in your prayers. It's this idea that we'd be aware of all that is going on around us. Jesus instructed His disciples in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if we follow Jesus' teaching on prayer, we'd find it's not only our source, our connection, our lifeline, but it's also our protection. It's also that which makes us more aware of what's going on around us and more aware of what's going on inside us. Pray, Paul says. Jesus teaches us to do the same. Friends, we're called to be steadfast in prayer. And then Paul gives us something to pray about. 
a prayer request that I believe is totally intentional as he moves in the end of this book. Something we need to take a careful note of. In verse 3, he writes this. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Verses 3 and 4, consider this for a moment. Paul, who might have been the greatest evangelist of all time. Paul, clearly the greatest church planner of all time. Paul, a guy who wrote a quarter of the New Testament, is seeking prayer. And not only is he seeking prayer, but he's seeking prayer for some specific things which tells us that if Paul needed prayer for God to open a door, and if Paul needed prayer to declare the mystery of Christ, and if Paul needed prayer to be clear about the message of Christ, if Paul requested this type of prayer, it could only be because Paul knew that the doors opening and the power to declare the gospel and the ability to be clear about it did not come from within Paul. It came from the Father who provided everything. Therefore, Paul was dependent on God not only for the door to be opened, but so that he might declare truth and that the message be clear. Church, if we're not careful, we could just make this out as if Paul was a more gifted, a more winsome, a more experienced, a more intelligent person than we are. And therefore, it was his giftedness, his winsomeness, his experience, and his intelligence that allowed him to be faithful, and we'd miss the point. We'd miss it entirely. What becomes clear out of this is that Paul was effective because he was dependent. And it was his reliance on the Lord in these moments that was his effectiveness. It was him humbly seeking open doors that he didn't open, that God opened. And it was him humbly speaking the words of God that weren't his. He asked that God would give him the words. And he didn't even trust himself for clarity. And it changed the course of the early church. Friends, we should pay attention to this. And note that as we pray, as one who has died with Christ, as we pray as one who's been resurrected with Christ, that there is great power in Christ. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that we would know that power that Paul accessed in his ministry. And to know that the power granted to us through prayer is given to us for better things than our health. And the power in prayer is given to us for better things than better parking spots. 
And the power given to us in prayer is for more than just helping your kids be potty trained or getting a better grade or anything else you can imagine. See, Paul prayed and Paul relied on Jesus not for his agenda, but for the Lord's. And you see his prayers in the book of Ephesians, in the book of Philippians, and here in Colossians. He centered his prayers in us knowing him more. And that the more we would know him, the more we would hope in him, the more we would know him, the more we would see his power, the more we would see his work, and the more we'd know how loved we are, Not that we would feel better about ourselves, but that we would join with Him in declaring the mysteries of Christ. Paul closes this letter by pushing us outward. Lest we think the faith is merely about me, and about what I want, and about what I need, and about my comfort, and my simplicity. And what I hope for. Friends, as we come into this Easter season and we ask you to invite people, make no mistake about it, it's not Calvary Church that makes a difference in somebody's life. It's Jesus Christ. So the opportunity exists there to not be that guy, right? So that we would express that people around us would see Jesus in our lives and we'd give them the opportunity to come into his presence. An opportunity that you could speak to them every day of your life. And an opportunity just to invite them in. As overwhelmingly people these days are more willing to accept an invitation now than they've ever been. Just read a research study that said 80% of people, if invited to church, and if you agree to meet them at the door and walk them in and sit with them, 80% of people would say yes. Which seems to suggest that the issue is not their willingness to come, but in our unwillingness to ask. That we would submit them to the power of Christ. Friends, let's pray for one another. That we will have doors open to us. Let's pray for one another. That we could declare the mysteries of Christ. And let's pray for one another. That it would come through clearly. Because Paul needed the prayer. And if he needed it, so do I. And so do we. Paul pushes us outward as he ends this letter. Lest we think the Gospel exists to make us feel better about ourselves. In verse 5, he gives a second exhortation, saying, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. It's a continued theme in this book. In chapter 1, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In chapter 2, we are called to walk in Jesus just as we've received Him. In chapter 3, we're reminded of how we used to walk and are therefore called to walk in a resurrected way. And in chapter 4, as he closes his letter, our walk is pushed outward. That we are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And if you'll allow me to be blunt, and you can't stop me because I've got a microphone, 
This is where the modern church has missed the mark. We've interpreted this passage as walk in wisdom away from outsiders rather than towards outsiders. That we've believed that our personal holiness mattered more than the salvation of others. Paul says here, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That we aim in the direction of outsiders wisely. Making the best use of time. Literally, that we buy up the time that we have for Christ. That's what it says, literally. Several years ago, I led a Bible study on a very liberal college campus. It was a unique season where I had the chance to to operate and to interact with college students from a variety of different backgrounds who came from far greater and far more diverse church backgrounds than I did. The vast majority of them incredibly liberal. We had a really rich season of ministry there. And one of my favorite times in our ministry came up in a book discussion we had in our first year of meeting. One of the gals brought a book written by Mark Cahill. I confess to you early on, I never read the book. But the book was called this. The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. I still have my notes from our conversation. The thrust of the book says this. That in all of eternity, we will get to enjoy God. In all of eternity, we will get to enjoy His creation. In all of eternity, we will get to worship Him. In all of eternity, we will fellowship with other believers and hear about His faithfulness. And yet the one thing we can't do in eternity is incarnate the gospel. The one thing we cannot do is join with Him in His work that people would hear of His majesties. Friends, Paul is writing this to you and to me, telling us that we didn't die with Christ, and we weren't resurrected with Christ to continue leading a life of a dead man. We were called to be alive. We were given life, and we were called to then be sent into a dead world to tell them where you find life. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Move towards them. And if you're not sure what that looks like, Paul bails you out in verse 6, saying, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul says that if you are leading a resurrected life that looks more and more and more like the character of Jesus, like everything he put before you in chapter 3, that when you open your mouth, grace should come out of you. Grace, seasoned with salt. Salt, sprinkled on food to make it more attractive, to make it taste better. When you you put mashed potatoes in front of me, I'm going to put salt on it. Why? It makes it better. Makes it more attractive. Makes it tastier. Paul's saying here that we speak in a way that is gracious. Grace is this, we don't deserve anything. Jesus gave us everything. We speak in a way that is gracious, sprinkled with truth. 
so that anyone who wants to ask us a question that they would be answered. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Both Paul and Peter seem to get this idea that we'd have two directions we'd head as Christians. That we'd pull away from outsiders. And so he calls us toward them. And then even as insiders, that we might react to them as if we somehow deserved what Christ did for us, and they somehow don't deserve it. That's why Paul calls us to speak with grace. I didn't deserve what Jesus Christ did for me. I didn't earn it. That's why Peter says to do it with gentleness and respect. Friends, you didn't come to know the Lord out of your great worth, out of your great value. Jesus didn't celebrate you as a high draft pick that signed with his team. Jesus earned us by dying on the cross for us. We accomplished little. He accomplished everything. Therefore, we have much to boast about in Jesus. That as we pursue the lives of others, as we walk in wisdom towards others, that our lives, our speech, would be seasoned with grace, would be seasoned with such a great hope of one who is supreme and one who is sufficient, that as we walk around with people looking for all kinds of things to fill their lives, for us to be able to, with a great amount of peace and sensitivity, say, I've done that too. And I found Jesus, and it's made all the difference. Paul calls us to be a people who are gracious, and a gracious people who give hope. We can't miss this part of Colossians. Because as Paul builds his argument, and he builds his message, built on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, which plays out in our lives that we put away the dead and we put on the new. And we put on these characteristics that the end of Christianity is not mere holiness. Holiness only reflects the Savior. It only fortifies our speech so that we can declare who He is. So that the hope that has been given to us can be given to others. That we might take the investment made in us and not bury it, but multiply it. This is Paul's encouragement to the Colossian church. That we would be a a gracious group of hope-giving people built up on Christ and sharing Christ. Verses 7-18. through I'm going to run through this quick. Paul sends personal greetings and exhortations, reminding us that these were real people living in a real time. That this isn't just a book out of nowhere, but these are real people who brought encouragement like Tychicus, who gave missions reports like Onesimus. 
that they were separated out for the cause of Christ and so sent greetings back to their families and friends like Aristarchus, Justice, and Epaphras, and people who needed exhortations like Archippus. Paul reminds us that these are real people. I read that list so you can be impressed by my knowledge of their names. These are real people, just like us. People who needed encouragement. People who needed exhortations. God was not building His church on Colossae on people who were far different than us. He built His church on people who were exactly like us. People who knew Jesus and people who relied on Jesus. The church, may we be a people that relies more and more and more on Him to accomplish His work. Through this letter to the church at Colossae, Paul called the followers of Christ to be built up in hope, to know the supremacy of Christ, to know the sufficiency of Christ, that it might permeate every part of their lives such that they would live out their lives as raised ones, living in the new life of Christ, proclaiming His excellencies and a salvation that was so great that it was sufficient for me. Let me pray for us. Father, as we have worked through this book of Colossians, through a letter uh, that Paul wrote to this church to build them up and to encourage them, may we likewise be built up to know who You are, to know what You accomplished for us at the cross, to know the complete sufficiency of it, that we can't earn it. There's nothing we could do to add to our standing before God. And there's nothing we could do to take away from that. That we who have believed in Jesus Christ, who've believed in His death and in His resurrection, that You've declared that we've been raised with Christ into a new life as a resurrected being, as an image bearer to declare who You are to the world. And Father, that as we walk, Would You not allow us to be given over to the sin of pulling ourselves in, but You'd give us the strength, the encouragement, and the stamina to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Father, that we would pursue them knowing that we have a hope that they need whether they know it or not. And Father, that You would grant us the words to speak. That those words would be gracious, seasoned with salt, Father, as people see a life in us that declares hope, that they'd hear words from us that declare hope. Father, do a great work in us to allow us to participate in your kingdom. Father, that as it advances and more people come into the kingdom, Father, that you would give us the privilege of being a firsthand witness of what you're up to. Father, that just as You brought me to salvation, just as You brought any of us to salvation, Father, that we could see You continue to work. Father, thank You for this book, for all it has taught me, for all it has taught our church. Father, to You be the glory forever and ever. Amen.